Atamari here, welcome to First Up. It is Ratu, Tuesday, the 22nd of November. Kornathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, we cross to our correspondents in the UK and Japan. We're going to go up north where LDR's Susan Botting is telling us why Mungafai is the new hot spot. We ask National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis why her party is so opposed to 16-year-olds having the vote after the Supreme Court ruled that excluding them amounts to unjustified discrimination. And we speak with one of the unsung heroes of the country's COVID response, the wastewater testers. Of all the sites we're looking at at the moment, last week was about 86 sites that we looked at. All but one were positive for COVID. So there's lots of it around. Kia ora koutou. welcome to First Up, I'm Nathan Rarere, let's go straight into it. We're going to the UK right now. Our co- our correspondent, Ellie J, is standing by from London. Kia ora Ellie, good to hear your voice again. Hey, um, it must be a very exciting time uh, in the UK at the moment. The football started at the World Cup and England's had their first game. Atamari eh, Nathan, yeah, you're absolutely right, that's what people are talking about today, the opening game for England in the World Cup. They've been playing against Iran. And so, spoiler alert, if anyone was planning to watch later, cover your ears, it has just finished this game. Uh, and England won 6-2 at full time. So, this, though, has been controversial. I mean, firstly, because the whole World Cup has been quite controversial already and the coverage here has been ramping up the past few days the discussion of what's happening whether or not it should have been held in Qatar also what conditions are like as fans are arriving so a lot of the reporting here is talking about uh, the heat it's talking about the fact that there was a ban on alcohol in the stadiums um, put in just a couple of days ago that was unexpected as well Um, some things as well to do with some of the fan zones some of the accommodation that people are staying in so I would say reporting here hasn't been overly positive. And then this morning, prior to the game, all of the talk was about whether or not the teams would wear one love armbands. So it actually came down to just the captains of the team, Harry Kane for England as well, Gareth Bale, the Wales captain. And this was a mark to kind of show solidarity with LGBTQI plus fans uh, in a country where homosexuality is illegal. And this armband, uh, it symbolises a campaign that was started to, to promote diversity and inclusion in football and players have been wearing them at different matches for a, a couple of years so the idea was that the captains of some European nations would wear them at the World Cup and they were waiting for FIFA to kind of say um, FIFA said they can't wear them and they were waiting to see if this decision would change and then it came out FIFA said if any player did wear one they would be booked as then they would receive uh, a yellow card or even a red card as well and then this morning uh, there was a joint statement from football associations saying that players wouldn't wear them. They wouldn't put their players in a position where they would face sporting sanctions. They said they were frustrated by FIFA's decision uh, and that had they have said uh, it's going to be a fine for players who wear these armbands, they probably would They would have paid it, they would have carried on, but it was the fact that players could be sent off, uh, they could be missing matches or banned from matches as well. They didn't want to put players in that position. So that was just this morning mm. Um, released a statement. They said that wasn't going to happen uh, as well. And at the moment, lots of people are, are angry about this and angry at um, FIFA's decision as well. So it's not a match without um, controversy. It's not a championship without controversy. 
I got, I got to say, I was, I was trying to have a search just while you were talking. 24 hours ago, reported by Reuters.com, the quote from Harry Kane, we've made it clear as a team, the staff in an organisation in an organization that we want to wear the armband. Um, so it's interesting, isn't it, what happens there in 24 hours uh, as they go. I guess um, FIFA boss Gianni Infantino not, not feeling so gay today. Tell me about Joe Lysette, the comedian, who, who shredded £10,000. What? Why? Yes, so last week, I mean, we were talking about Joe last week as well, and he had said, uh, he had released this video where he said, I've got £10,000 of my own money, and it was addressed to David Beckham and saying to David Beckham, you should pull out of this um, advertising deal or this deal he had to be an ambassador um, for the World Cup uh, that was paying him, Qatar were paying him, or are paying him, I suppose, um, £10 million for this Deal. So Joe Lysett was saying, um, David Beckham, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this in a, again, uh, taking money from an organization from a country as well, their attitude towards the LGBTQI plus community uh, and saying that David Beckham had always been an ally and he he should withdraw from this deal or Joe was going to shred uh, the cash. So a few days ago, he released a video. He said um, David Beckham had up until the opening ceremony to get in touch with him. Um, he kept posting updates on Twitter as well, saying, I've heard nothing from David. I've heard absolutely nothing from his people and so just before the opening ceremony he released this video of him throwing this £10,000 into a shredder it all came out the other side and since then I mean a lot of people were very supportive and said you know he wouldn't have had this kind of publicity had he spent that £10,000 on publicity but the fact that it came with the jeopardy with the risk of what he was going to do meant that it it kind of bought more than £10,000 worth of publicity uh, Lots of people also saying it was irresponsible. It was um, a ridiculous thing to do in a cost of living crisis when people need it. But now this morning, Joe has posted another video um, saying that he had already, before even the first one came out, before he even put this challenge to David Beckham, he had already donated that money um, to charities who support queer people in the football community. And whilst he threw it in the shredder, it didn't get shredded because he wasn't expecting David Beckham to respond to him. There it is. That's performance art. Thank you very much from the UK. That is Ali J. 11 and a half past five, uh, you are listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. Keen for your feedback. It's an interesting one. Uh, 16 year olds and 17 year olds as you uh, will have heard in the headlines and what have you the Supreme Court of New Zealand some of them took them to the Supreme Court have ruled that excluding them from voting and amounts to unjustified discrimination so your thoughts on that 2101 your thoughts on that with the voting age if it were to drop not just your own thoughts but do you think it would change the landscape of how our political parties perhaps need to frame their policies um, 2101 is the way you can get to us or first up at rnz.co.nz well the head of NASA's Orion space program says that he expects the agency to have humans living on the moon by the end of the decade it's hoped having a lunar base will allow for further space exploration including the future missions to Mars the ABC's Flint Duxfield reports three two one and liftoff of Artemis 1 we rise together back to the moon and beyond. 
It's almost five decades since humans last set foot on the moon. But NASA scientist Howard Hu says with the launch of the Orion spacecraft late last week, that's soon set to change. I mean, it is just an incredible moment. An incredible moment not uh, just for us in the United States but around the world. The Orion craft is currently on course to do a lunar flyby later tonight. And while it doesn't have any humans on board, Howard Hu says it's the first of a series of Artemis missions which NASA expects will see humans landing and living on the moon by the end of the decade. And what we're trying to do is we're providing the foundation uh, for long-term sustainable um, living on the surface of the moon and also being able to uh, do and perform scientific uh, discoveries. It won't be the first time humans will live for an extended period in space. More than 200 astronauts have lived aboard the International Space Station for months at a time. But scientists say the health impacts of living on the moon will provide a different level of challenge altogether. Dr Katerina Milkovic is an Associate Professor in Planetary Sciences at Curtin University. If we have a spacecraft in our orbit, we're still protected by Earth's magnetosphere and we're still kind of tucked in the protective shielding of our planet. So... You know, it's kind of hard to claim that we know how it's going to turn out without really testing it out. The Artemis 1 mission is the first of several launches that will be needed to return humans to the moon. But the Artemis program has already had several setbacks. And Dr Milkovic believes that puts NASA's timeline of having humans living on the moon by 2030 in doubt. I do believe it's happening. Whether or not it's going to happen by the end of the decade or maybe the next decade, that's really something that is hard to, to say. Other space experts, though, are more optimistic. Dr Brad Tucker is an astrophysicist at ANU. He believes NASA has a good chance of having humans living for short periods on the moon by the end of the decade. It's hoped having people on the moon could provide a springboard for further space exploration, including to Mars. Though Dr Tucker warns that may still be many years away. There's a lot of difference and a lot of work between the moon and Mars. You know, just because you've gotten off your P's and can now drive doesn't mean you can go in the, the Bathurst 500 and that's the equivalent of going to Mars. So there's a lot of work needed to make that jump, but it all starts with the moon. The ABC's Eyes Australian, Flint Duxfield. It is a quarter past five here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Raduri. We go to Japan now, where our correspondent in Tokyo, Chris Gilbert, can uh, tell us about a law change that's aimed at supporting people who've fallen foul of scammers masquerading as religious groups. As you'll hear, because uh, this has become a very real problem there. Okay, so this is far more interesting than it sounds, I promise you. It's actually quite sensational. You might remember a few months ago that the former Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, was shot during a rally. He was assassinated in public. And the gunman who killed him said that he was motivated because he believed that Abe was linked to this group, which you may have heard about, called the Unification Church. It's this uh, South Korean-based religious group, which in Japan is effectively a cult because Japan is not very Christian. But they do kind of like weird things like mass weddings and apparently the gunman said that his grieving mother who was a widow had given about seven hundred thousand dollars which was like the family's fortune to this church and so parliament began an investigation into all this about how this group collects money allegedly it preys on widows to scam them a huge amounts of money by saying oh your deceased husband yeah he's in hell and uh, would you like him to go to heaven okay well i can help you go to heaven etc etc so what is sensational about this is that what the law change would do was let the children or spouses of people who have or followers of these kinds of religious groups which have given a lot of money to these groups under duress 
get some of that money back. And so what is sensational about this is though it seems as though the Japanese government is responding to the assassination of Shinzo Abe by giving the assassin exactly what he wanted, or at least by creating the conditions in which the assassination may not have happened in the first place. It's also extraordinary because of how this bill is worded. Now, imagine this in a piece of New Zealand legislation and going before our parliament. It says, it's going to ban donations coerced by a religious group on the basis that a psychic says it's absolutely necessary for the well-being of a dead loved one to give them $700,000. It is quite honestly one of the most fascinating pieces of, of legislation I've seen go before Japan. I know I said legislation and fascinating in the same sentence. <laughs> but as far as I know, it's kind of unheard of that a government responds to like kind of a political event like that assassination by changing the law to create the conditions under which that assassination wouldn't take place. Fascinating, Nate. Fascinating. That, no, that re- really is. Still, it's psychic involved in there. I wasn't ready for that one to appear uh, in the story, but there you go. So staying with politics, is something in their diet? The three government ministers going in a month. Why? Yeah. I chucked diet as a pun in there for you, Nate. I'm not sure if you picked up on it, but the Japanese parliament is called the diet. Oh, so is there something know. in their diet? Anyway, I digress. <laughs> oh, it's fine. Three government ministers <laughs> have resigned in a month because is there something in their diet? No, there's a lot of scandals happening at the moment in the Japanese parliament called the diet. Uh, Kishida has just come back, he's the Prime Minister, just come back from APEC, hanging out with Xi Jinping, hanging out with Joe Biden at the G20, being, you know, all the cool kids, comes back home, finds his cabinet complete mess. Okay, first, a month ago, the Economic Revitalization Minister, you know, that's, you know, resigned, which is quite ironic considering the state of the economy at the moment, it really needs revitalizing over his connections to the aforementioned Unification Church. Second, the Justice Minister, completely completely avoidable situation, made a verbal gaffe where he said to the media, oh, you guys don't even care about justice. You only care about it when I talk about the death penalty. And everyone was like, oh, and then he resigned. And now thirdly, the internal affairs minister, and this is actually quite serious, for, quote, funding discrepancies in his like campaign donations and about how he compensated lawmakers during the previous the upper house elections we just had in july so he is the latest to go the thing is that Kishida, we've talked about this all the time, his approval ratings didn't think they could go any lower. They just went lower. They've gone from like 43% to 27% in the last couple of months. And usually that's not bad for a Japanese prime minister because, you know, they, you know the, the LDP, the party, is always in power and Kishida doesn't face an election for another three years. But it's not a good look. And people inside his party might get disgruntled. Here's a little fact that the media is talking about at the moment. Your average LDP, ruling party prime minister in Japan, lasts 475 days. They churn through them quite quickly. Kishida has just passed day 400. So he has 75 days to hang on to, to reach the median tenure of a Japanese prime minister. But three ministers dropping in a month is not a good look. That's Chris Gilbert. I didn't know it was called The Diet. In Tokyo. And 
we would like to award five bonus points if you did know that the Japanese parliament was um, known as the Diet. So just mark it down on your First Up scorecard for the year. I'm Nathan Rarere and you are listening to First Up here on RNZ National. Coming up, we hear the new hot spot for Aucklanders to emigrate to and we hear about the heroes testing your wastewater. To Northland now, where the seaside town of Mungafai is starting to groan under the weight of all the Aucklanders who've been flocking there. I spoke with local democracy reporting programme journalist Susan Botting, who's been looking into the issue. Yes, well, there's a lot of people in Auckland, like 1.72 million people, and Mungafai's got around about 6,000 people now, and Aucklanders love going to Mungafai, and they reckon in 20 years there might be 20,000 people in Mungafai. Wow. It's quite a lot of people, really. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I guess a lot and, for you know, the locals. The with, uh, yeah, and the Northland border with Auckland is only 11 kilometres away, and Mungafai is only like 100 k's from Queen Street. Aucklanders love their mod cons, though, when they go. Tell us about uh-huh. the area. Are they, are they bringing those with them? I imagine they might be, like jet skis and boats, and, <laughs> and of course it's a great surfing mecca, and a pair of running shoes is a fairly much of a mod con, perhaps. I'm not so sure about the internet, but I'm sure that's pretty fabulous. And the other things, you know, Aucklanders love to go to Mangafai, I think, because it's got a brilliant harbour, which, in spite of its controversial sewage plant history, the harbour's actually really well ranked as far as water quality due to the great sewage treatment plant. And it's a great harbour with rare, tiny terns, fairy terns, that are only 40 of them left in the world. There's a great surf beach there, Mangafai Heads, really popular with people. There's Mangafai Walking Weekend, and it's really quite close to town. I was actually thinking it's probably the next least developed spot north of Oriwa and Omaha, actually, when I think about it. Yeah. So I was thinking there, you mentioned there about uh, obviously the, the sewage treatment which has been done and that's wonderful to hear too that the harbour is, is um, back to being looked after well. What about other resources and, and, and infrastructure to cope with an influx of people? Well, it's kind of groaning. Mungafai is kind of groaning under the weight because 40% of the housing in Mungafai is owned by Aucklanders, often having it as their batch mm. and so not always living there. The sewage treatment plant is probably amongst, well, I should say, the wastewater treatment plant in Mungafai, the process used over time is possibly among the settlement's most notorious infrastructure story, which resulted in huge cost overruns early on and commissioners being appointed to run the council and ratepayers revolting and the whole nine yards. The uh, area doesn't have reticulated drinking water and it has under pressure electricity too. So there's no more capacity to provide any electricity beyond those facilities that are already consented. So there's quite a lot of pressure on the infrastructure. And and you mentioned, I was just thinking too, environmentally as well, uh, you mentioned about those turns, and I'm thinking, gosh, if there's only 40, you don't want people showing up from the big city with their dogs off the lead, do you? No way. Not at all. Not at all. And a dog, of course, might look gorgeous lying draped in front of the fireplace or out on the deck, but what's it doing when no one's looking? So it's something to think about, really. Yeah. Really something to think about. Those um, fairy turns, they even make the billboards. You know, I saw a sign there on Friday at Bennett's Cafe concourse there, and it said, yay, the first two fairy turn chicks have hatched, and this is really great for the season, but... On the one hand, you've got that. On the other hand, the pressure potentially from people, and there's only a few precious 
habitats left for those little tiny birds. So it's uh, quite an interesting contrast, really. Makes you wonder, Susan, why didn't the fairy turn? There should have been a bigger turnout for that for Bird of the Year. We'll make that for next year, okay? That'll mean me and you. That'll be our project. But, uh, is that a bigger turnout, did you Yes. Say? Did you like that one? It's well crafted, wasn't it? Taraiti is the name for the turn, and it's also the name of a massive private golf course development on the outskirts of Mangafai that's been played by people including Barack Obama and is ranked one of the top ten in the world. That sounds amazing. Now, tell me that with all the tempting you've been doing, that's quite good. But I see the mayor wants Mungify's neighbours in Kaipara to get in on the action too. Well, so the mayor, you know, Kaipara's got 27,000 people. It's on the doorstep of Auckland. And Mungify's kind of growing and growing and growing. But the mayor is very keen to think about the rest of Kaipara as well. And one of the ideas he's got is to think of the giant Kaipara harbour. And uh, he's thinking about the idea of maybe low-class productive land around the edges of the harbour that's got views mm. could be developed into small blocks and subdivided and of course Aucklanders might be one of the target audiences for buying properties. Mm. I want to move there now, that's LDR's Susan Botting Like sands through the hourglass so are the days of our lives. When I put this segment together Sometimes there's things where I just stop in my tracks and go, oof, so you're going to want to sit down for this one. Oh, by the way, 22nd of November. Remember Rodney Dangerfield? Remember the movie where he did the triple Lindy? Back to school. He's dead. But Rodney Dangerfield was born 101 years ago. Yeah, I had to sit down after that. Anyway... I'm getting old. Uh, let's have a look at who's having birthdays today and is still with us. Two of the Avengers, Scarlett Johansson turns 38 and Mark Ruffalo is 55 years old today. Jamie Lee Curtis turns 64. Who doesn't love Jamie Lee Curtis? I think uh, every... Is she the most... One of the universally loves? I think so. Um, turning 79 years old today is Billie Jean King and Terry Gilliam is 82. This was the day in 1963 that US President John F. Kennedy was assassinated while riding in an open-topped motorcade through Dealey Plaza in downtown Dallas. And on this day in 1995, uh, Toy Story came out, and it was a hugely significant film in its time. It was the first fully computer animated movie. Pixar had been signed to a five-year deal. Uh, Steve Jobs from Apple was the, the head of the company. The Disney animators obviously hated these people coming in and using, what is this newfangled stuff you're doing? But Disney films were starting to tank before that. Anyway, uh, Disney also didn't like the fact there were no musical numbers in it, and they just went with a Randy Newman soundtrack. Instead, it was made for $30 million. They hoped to break even at $70 million. $361 million is what it made. It launched Pixar into a major player in the video entertainment world. Uh, since then, Pixar have received 700 award nominations and won more than half of them. And that is what happened uh, on this day of our life, the 22nd of November. I need a dollar, 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 that's what I need. Joining us now from our business team is Andrew McRae. Kia ora, how are you? G'day Nathan, I'm good, thanks. I see that whilst the world leaders sort of back out of COP27 and go, well, we'll chuck you 10 bucks, just shut up about it, um, and we're just going to keep on burning coal and what have you, that I see a Taranaki company leading the way though in the renewable gas industry. 
Yeah, apparently the, the renewable gas industry in this country is is booming, really. Uh, that's basically the, what's fledgling Taranaki companies doing. They're, they're working to blend hydrogen into existing gas pipelines. Now, the company is H2X. It's uh, based in New Plymouth. Its units will use electricity to combine hydrogen with natural gas at industrial and commercial sites, and this could reduce greenhouse gas emissions by up to 25%. Now, other companies are getting into it as well. Uh, New Plymouth's uh, first gas is to begin a hydrogen trial uh, in Waverley and Taranaki, uh, while in Riparoa, unwanted food scraps from cities are going to be turned into methane. So that's it's all good news. Uh, H2X's operations started three years ago at Bell Block, uh, just uh, on the outskirts of New Plymouth, and they're already seeing commercial gain, according to its operations manager, Tom Wiseman. Now, how it works is... Uh, the unit will use electricity on a client's site and put electrolyzers on the site. I'm not exactly sure what they are, but uh, that's what happens. And they blend it with natural gas to reduce their emissions by up to a quarter. And this will be the first step in the gas transition, which will open the door to eventually 100% renewable, when certainly when biogases become available. Now, th- this company looked at what new technologies were available overseas to move their business on from fossil fuel fuels. Uh, Tom Wiseman says they they kind of latched onto a couple of uh, different technologies from around the world that are a bit different to how things have been done over the last 50 years in the the hydrogen uh, industry. And this includes uh, renewable gas, uh, you know, experiencing a real upswing around the place. Interestingly, uh, Tom Wiseman says there's no clear defined path within the industry and there are multiple options available that would definitely, you know, going to eventually uh, benefit all gas users. Now, the company's future strategy is, of course, dependent on regulations and plans by the government. And the gas transition plan, which is going to be published late next year, is going to be vital uh, in, in this uh, change of the hydrogen industry. And talking about the industry itself, uh, the membership of, the, of its industry body, Gas NZ, has doubled. Uh, Chief Executive uh, Janet Carson says uh, innovators were attracted by the excitement of building a whole new category of renewable energy. She says companies are recognising the benefits of belonging to a collective that will be future-focused and the opportunities uh, the association provides to collaborate with uh, you know, like-minded businesses. Because a lot of these companies are you know, small fledgling companies. Mm. Gas NZ's uh, focused on opportunities, while according... Uh, According to uh, Janet, the, it's going to ensure natural gas and LPG remains available to the something like a million plus direct gas cus- customers and users out there. And so they're still going to get natural gas while these new technologies come on board and come online. Yeah. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. It's, it's exciting hydrogen. You're going to hear a lot more about it. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report at 10.27. Let's have a look and see what your New Zealand dollar can buy you today. It can buy you 61.07 US cents, 92.35 Australian cents, 59.51 Euro cents, 51.65 British pence, 4.37 yuan and 86.41 Japanese yen. Well, uh, the New Zealanders at the World Trampoline Champs in Sofia in Bulgaria had a blinder of a competition. Olympic bronze medalist Dylan Schmidt claimed his first World Trampoline World title, uh, joining fellow Kiwi Bronwyn Dibb on the podium after she took out the women's double mini tramp comp. Earlier this year, he was a contestant on Celebrity Treasure Island. Hmm. So I asked him, how does that actually help you stay trampoline fit while you're taking part in that? Well, I didn't, but I guess I made a decision to... (laughs) take the opportunity when it popped up and it was earlier on in the year so I knew I had time um, to get back to, into shape and you had plenty of time I had a really really good build up to this world so yeah sometimes I guess you just gotta 
take the plunge and do things when they pop up. Yeah, why not, eh? Why not? So tell me, what, what are the... Tra- now, this is a really basic question, sorry for it. What are the trampolining muscles that, that you work at? Because all athletes in all sports have really uh, particular routines and stuff. So when you mentioned there you couldn't train, what were the bits when you were back in action? You're like, right, I've got to got to work on these. Well, just get back on a trampoline really is the main thing. Um, trampoline fitness and, and that sort of trampoline training is, is, is super important. But yeah, I mean, in the gym, I do mainly, I guess, legs and, and core and sort of plyometric based work. I saw the footage of your routine, which is amazing, like how high you're, you're getting in that. So tell us the difference between being successful at the World Champs and, and also the Olympics now that you've succeeded in both. Just talk us through through both events and the contrasts that you found. To be honest, the Olympics is a lot easier. Really? World Champs is an absolute slog of a of a week. Yeah, number one, there's a lot more people at um at Worlds, so you sort of got to go through. You got to beat 100 people as opposed to beating 16. So, yeah, you're kind of going through more stages and more rounds and more routines over a longer period of time. So, yeah, World Champs is definitely, I I think, a harder week. Well, it is a harder competition. I hadn't really considered that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, more of them, more more enemies to smite uh, along the way. So, as you were heading into this, did you? As, I mean, I don't know. Can you can you sense that you're about you know that you're in really good form? Yeah, I mean, I I was feeling good. Uh, the scores I was hitting were pretty up there, and um, yeah, I knew I was in a pretty good place to take at that final. But yeah, it's it's still pretty bloody stressful when you got to um, put it down when it counts. But yeah, I'm just just glad it all came together. See, the thing with 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 all of you in, in the gymnastic sports is you've got to keep one upping not just everybody else, but you've got to one up yourself in that as well. So, you know, from Olympics to Olympic cycle, are you right now in the stage where you know you've got new tricks in mind for what you were going to do? Like, do you try and invent new things? Because you know, the, the anyone on a, a snowboard is like, oh, that's the first seventeen thousand two eighty that anyone's ever done. You know, like, you, is is this sort of what what you're working to as well? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's not really certain skills, but probably just routines, um, like routine construction. So yeah, I'm, I'm working on a on new routines that I guess no one's done before for Paris. So yeah, it's um, definitely something that we need to be thinking about. Um, the sports in the last few years has definitely um, been on a pretty upward trajectory in terms of like difficulty and and all that. So yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible what you do. It really, I mean, I think most of us that have ever done the the normal uh, Christmas trampoline jump, bounce on your bum, and then back up again. It's always impressive when we see you there. So, where, where does it go for you now? Between now and and the Olympic Games, tell me, is there a circuit that, that you go on there in Europe to be a part of? Or what's what's the schedule for you now? Look, I'd love to tell you the schedule, but we actually <laughs> haven't been given it yet. That's a little bit frustrating, but we don't know what comps are going to be qualifiers. So. We sort of know a rough idea. We know the time frame. But, um, yeah, next year there's just a few World Cups. I'm going to assume three that I'll be going to, to to qualify and then World Champs again at the end of the year for another chance to qualify and then a couple more World uh, World Cups at the start of 2024 if I haven't qualified by then. So, yeah, I mean, it's just back into the normal circuit next year and go to Europe a few times and um, we'll just have to look at the schedule when it comes out and make a plan from there. And it must have been quite good to have Bronwyn Dib with you as well, who, who was also quite successful. Go Team New Zealand. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And not just Bronny. Man, we just absolutely killed it as the New Zealand team. You know, Maddie as well, first female to make a world individual final, our Olympian as well. And then obviously Campbell as well made the final for men's double mini. And, and Regan came 12th in individual trampoline. And he's the only person to break the top 16 apart from me. So we absolutely had a blinder, eh, with New Zealand um 
I think we won 25% of the individual titles at the event. Yeah. World Champ, so um, pretty incredible. <laughs> That's Tramp Champ, Dylan Schmidt. It's 21 to 6. I'm Nathan Rarita here at First Up on RNZ National. So still to come on the programme, uh, we speak to Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis and we also hear from Senior ESR Scientist Joanne Hewitt about the wastewater testing regime which has become such a key part of New Zealand's fight against COVID-19. <laughs> The professionals of Morning Report are here after six. Corin Dan is the man with the plan. In the tan van. Remember that from Sesame Street? I do, actually, yeah. yes. <laughs> I don't know why that appeared in my head. Sorry. Well, I, yeah, no, Sesame Street, it was, uh, it was just, it was there. was place to be, wasn't it? Yes. yes. The letter B. Uh, now, uh, we are looking at the voting age issue, of course. We'll have plenty on that. Kitty Allen, the Justice Minister, also National's Justice Spokesperson, uh, will be in to discuss that, the process from here, the uh, merits for it and against, with some other panellists as well. A very interesting issue, that one. Mm. Uh, FIFA. And the armbands that the English who couldn't wear them. Well, this after is yesterday it. saying in that press conference, yeah, we're going to. But the, well, <laughs> and it's now, very 24 interesting. Twenty-four hours they, later, or not now, they would have been fined or potentially had yellow cards. Yeah. So they they felt that if they they didn't want to uh, ruin their chances by having their good players whatever yellow well, carded. So, I saw yeah. um I saw a lot of people in football uh, on Twitter football Twitter this morning going no the the Iranian team were far more brave because look at them they're not singing their national anthem and that was yes. their protest so yeah an interesting one yeah no it is an interesting one I mean they weren't prepared to go that far the FA the British Football Association they said they'd pay the fines if FIFA fined them. But they hmm. wouldn't. They couldn't um, risk losing players. So that's an interesting debate too. So we'll have more on that and the housing market uh, and interest rates as we head into another Reserve Bank uh, interest rate hike tomorrow, which is pretty much locked in, really, isn't it? Seventy-five basis points. Yeah. They're only going one way at the moment. Get your scroggin' going hiking. Thank you very much, Corin Dan. Well, something that we've been increasingly reliant on during the course of the pandemic is wastewater testing. It's pretty remarkable technology that's able to detect whether there is even a single COVID case in a community. As we're currently riding the crest of a new wave of the virus, we thought it would be worth touching base with one of the scientists behind the country's wastewater testing regime. And I asked a senior scientist, uh, Joanne Hewitt of ESR, to talk me through how it all works. There's lots of ways that you can take a sample of wastewater. What you're trying to do is get a good representative sample from the population. So if you go to the wastewater treatment plant, that's where all the, the waste ends up. So the best way is to take something called, it's called a 24-hour composite sample. Hmm. So basically you put the tube into the sewage and pump out um, a set amount every oh, 10 to 25 minutes, for example, over a whole day, so over a whole 24-hour period. So that gets um, a good representation over a particular time. The alternative is to take just a grab sample, which takes a, a point in time during the day. The problem with getting a grab sample is that you could miss what you're looking for. So... Most people use the toilet in the morning or in the evening, so there might be a peak flow. So if you take a sample at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you're only going to test what's available at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and not what's been available the rest of the day. In that way, you get a better representation sample over a 
particular time period. So, you know, the question yeah. has to be asked, when we expel the COVID virus out of our body, is it more likely to be in our urine or in our faeces? The main bodily excrement is faeces, so it's shedding faeces. So it's not alive or infectious in faeces, but you can still detect it. It's not in urine in, in very high quantities at all. So it's the faecal matter that we're looking for. And some laboratories over internationally just look at the solid material yeah. rather than the wastewater. So it's in high concentrations in the solids, not the liquid. And, and then when it comes through and you say, okay, we've we've detected it in, in here, is it just a yes, there's some here, or does it let you know there's a huge amount of it, or it's in this particular community? Like, how do, how do you get down to that nitty-gritty? When we first started this, there wasn't a lot of COVID around, so we were just looking for the, the detection of COVID in wastewater and not looking at the the quantities so now um, we're able to look at the quantities in wastewater pretty easily there's good levels and uh, that are consistently detected so of all the sites we're looking at at the moment last week was about 86 sites that we looked at um all but one were positive for wow. covid so there's lots um, of it around so there's lots of it around yeah which makes a big change from where we were in 2020 and 2021 yeah, you know, and one of the things that something we can all remember was, I think, towards the end of one of the lockdowns, that the case of the truck driver, we were a little bit worried there because during one of the Auckland lockdowns, I think they'd tra- travelled to Palmerston North, but you managed to, to be reassured that he hadn't taken COVID outside of the city. And, and was that based off, off this kind of testing? Yeah, that's that's right. So that was during a time where we were looking at um, sites, make sure that there was no COVID in the community. So... We um, got a positive from the sewage sample um, that we took in Palmerston North and that happened to coincide with the truck driver that had arrived in Palmerston North and fortunately um, had tested positive. And uh, yeah, we got a number of detections from that um, and we knew that there was only one case in that population. So that's one case in 90,000. So that really sort of demonstrated what the sensitivity was. And then, of course, when the... um, the patient was well and was released the wastewater was went negative so that was just re- reassuring that it hadn't been passed on and everything was good again science <laughs> eh? science what about that <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing and, and just uh, just before i go so you know you, you mentioned there's a lot of it around at the moment are you noticing that it is many types of different variants are there new ones you haven't seen before so what's happening at the moment, actually, the peak levels that we've seen in wastewater actually coincided with a peak level of cases. So that was early on in the year, in mm. February, and then in, in July. The levels have never got back to those levels that we, we saw in those those two periods. So it's been quite low for a couple of months. Um, so that's good, and that matches with the relatively no, low number of cases that are reported. Mm. So that's good. So... For the variants, we're, we're looking at, um, so I mentioned before about the 85 sites, 20 of those were looking for variants. And so what we're doing, we're looking at those variants that we know are likely to be in New Zealand or that are of interest for us. And so we're just focusing on those mainly. And we're seeing the ones that have been detected in the clinical cases, we're also seeing in the wastewater as well. So that gives us some reassurance 
that the methods are, are working and, and functioning. But it's always it's always going to be a challenge to detect that one case that's just got a, a different variant just because of how much the virus gets diluted in these uh, huge populations. So, yeah, that's always going to be a challenge. So the the idea of the wastewater is to support the data that we're getting from the clinical samples, which are only really representing about 2% of the total reported cases. Yeah. And so the wastewater's got the potential to, you know, I think we're doing up to almost 3 million people recovering with the variant analysis just on those 20 sites. So gives us a bit more reassurance that what we're doing in the, the clinical sequencing is representative of what's going on in the community as a whole. ESR Senior Scientist Joanne Hewitt. It is nine minutes to six. Rattle your dags if you need to be somewhere. Every week we speak to the deputy leader of the uh, of each major political party. And of course, Tuesday mornings here mean it's time to hear from Nationals Nicola Willis. So I um, thought it was the hot topic. And she started by telling me her thoughts on the Supreme Court ruling that excludes 16 and 17 year olds from voting and uh, how that amounts to unjustified discrimination. National opposes a change in the voting age. We basically think that 18 is largely considered the age of adulthood in New Zealand. You have to draw a line somewhere and 18 is working just fine, thanks very much. If you think about buying alcohol, getting married without permission from the family court, recruiting into the army, none of those things can you do under the age of 18 and we don't think voting should be able to be happen under the age of 18 either. But you can drive a car, you can leave school, you can own a firearm, you can have sex, you can pay tax under that age as well. Like, should you be not paying tax then if you're under there, if you're not mature enough? I think you can pay tax under the age of 18. But, you know, it's notable that the youth justice system treats 16 and 17-year-olds differently from 18-year-old offenders. And that's because they're considered youth offenders, not adult offenders. So as I said, we view 18 as broadly the age of adulthood in New Zealand, and you do have to draw a line somewhere. I'm sure some would argue it's 16, others would argue it's 15. Well, we think 18's working just fine. And more to the point, Nathan, we're in a, a situation in New Zealand right now with rising crime, with truancy, with a cost of living crisis. This is not what Parliament should be occupying its time with. Well, I think it's interesting, though, because what I look at is I just wonder what you've got for, for people of that age. And I think I looked at the American elections and I saw with what happened there with their polling and then those younger voters that came through, because a lot of them are saying, fine, talk about interest rates. We've given up on ever owning a house. That's not our concern. We want to do something about the climate. And none of you are doing anything when they look at either side of the house. So what would National have for the 16 and the 17-year-olds, is there any anything, do, do they, I mean, what's the thought in your policy making for them? Oh, I absolutely welcome them being involved in the civic process. Um, during my time in Parliament, I've seen young people protest at Parliament, I've seen them submit to select committees, I've seen them share their political views in a number of ways. I support that, I encourage that, but I think the voting age should remain at 18. None of that precludes people being involved in the process in other ways. They can look forward to the special right of voting at 18. Okay. I was just thinking that over 18, we do have some one, uh, woefully uninformed adults that can still vote, right? And how, are they more valuable than an intelligent 16 and 17-year-old that's, that's engaged in you know, what policies are? No, <laughs> it's not a value judgment about people's worth. It's about saying, let's draw a line at what age you can vote 
18 is broadly considered the age of adulthood. So let's make that the voting age in New Zealand. That's been uh, the situation for many years. It works well. We don't see a case for change. Okay. Um, last week, uh, you know, made a bit of news there with the youth crime policies, uh, and a lot of them have obviously come under scrutiny as they do when they come out. So your MPs have been making out it's quite a good result that 85% of the teens that went through the boot camps that you had re-offended. How is that a win? What the results of previous youth justice policies have shown is that there are a range of different approaches and some can work well and some don't. What we're proposing is something altogether new. We're proposing a form of rehabilitation that occurs in a military setting but would be run by the Ministry of Justice. We're proposing that these courses be well-funded, that they include mentoring, rehabilitation, whether it's for drugs or alcohol, and the other support needed to get a young person who's on the wrong path back onto the right path. And look, the alternative is to go with the status quo And right now, what that means is ram raids increasing more than 500%, a ram raid every 15 hours, and a serious group of repeat offenders, young offenders, who are getting increasingly violent and putting New Zealanders at risk. We're not prepared to stand by and let that continue. But as a a boot camp, is that the only way to do it? You know, because there there is a lot of that. Back in our day when there was, you know, which I used to hear, when there was compulsory military service, and I used to think, gosh, it must have been wonderful back in those days when there was no crime. Like, surely not everybody is the same. Not everybody is the same. And what we're proposing is that this would be an option. We have based our costings for it on the idea of around 60 young people a year going into an academy like this. We want the youth court to have a range of options, but what we also want to do is recognised there is a particular category of serious young offenders who are repeat violent offenders doing really serious crimes, and we want them to face harsher penalties because we don't think the current system is working. Now, some of them may go to one of these military academies. Others may go into another form of intensive supervision, but we think this should be an option. We think this could change some people's lives for the better. Okay. Um, I know the, uh, the speed limits have been, gosh, they've been a bit of a hot topic. I know uh, when I drove uh, back home to Hawke's Bay, there was the you know, the bit where it gets to 80 and there were even signs up there that people weren't happy. But you're doing pretty well if you can go over 80 on that twisty road. But anyway, I know that um, campaigning to keep speed limits as they are is something that uh, your national is keen on. Why is that? Because you know, a lot of people would point and say they're trying to lower the speeds to make them safer. Well, if you look at the map proposed by NZTA, virtually no state highway would have a speed limit of 100 anymore. They'd all be reduced unless you're on one of National's roads of national significance, such as uh, the Waikato Expressway. You'll find yourself being told you can only go 80k or maybe 60k in some instances. And we just think that's a band-aid approach to the real issue, which is some of our roads require better maintenance and more support in that way. And so we don't support a blanket ban of that sort, saying no one's allowed to go 100Ks anymore. We don't think New Zealanders would welcome it. And in fact, it would be better to fix the roads as they are and enforce the road rules as they stand. Yeah. Finally, you're anticipating a sixth interest rate hike in a row from the Reserve Bank this week. So why are you laying blame for the government uh, on, on this? Well, the simple fact is the Reserve Bank is lifting interest rates because inflation has remained so high for so long. And there's a number of things contributing to inflation. Some of them are international. 
but some of them are happening here at home. The lack of workers in our economy is, is driving inflation. The government could fix that with better immigration settings and by moving more people from unemployment into work. The huge amounts of spending this government is doing, some of which is pretty wasteful, it's on bureaucracy and consultants for things that never happen, is also helping drive inflation. We're yet to see the government present a real plan to deal with inflation. For so long as the government sits back and lets the Reserve Bank do all the work, well, New Zealanders are going to be paying very high mortgage payments. That's Nicola Willis who joins us every week. There's been a ton of feedback come in uh, about the voting age, so we'll try and get through as much as I can. Barbara in Auckland says, I know 16-year-olds with more perception and better judgement than many of their elders, and Seymour sounds like a junior Trump. By the way, I'm 87, have seen a lot, but dispute age, uh, but dispute that age brings wisdom. Jessica says lowering the voting age would absolutely change the political landscape. People that age have very different priorities. This is probably why the National Party is so opposed to the change. Zane's not happy that the rainbow community are, are uh, trying to be involved in, in everything. Um, another one here, giving 16 to 17-year-olds won't change a lot. There are 20, 30, 40-year-olds, etc. not politically engaged. Let them have a chance if they're politically engaged. Um, this is a good one too, and thank you very much for this. Uh, no gas is renewable. Stop calling blue hydrogen clean. And then, and then we had a um, bit of an explanation there. And then I fell down a rabbit hole looking at all the different colours of hydrogen thank you I will brush up on that and hates how I talk uh, Nolene says uh, Bennett's chocolate in Manawatu is yummy uh, also Mike says should we trust the science not the politicians and there's an earthquake in Indonesia says someone but you lead with National Party say do you ever wonder about your priorities that's all for first up today but you can listen to it all day on the podcast how good